But are we really that different, Mercy? <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> I, I, the, I'm, I'm still a reporter. I'm no longer a reporter, but I uh, approach my work through a journalistic lens. I have a master's degree from Quinnipiac University. Do you as well? Look at us. Go Bobcats. Go Bobcats. Go Bobcats. This is Untold, the Connecticut Mirror's news and culture podcast that takes three simple charges, challenge assumptions, seek understanding, and leave nothing untold. I'm John Dankosky. And I'm Mercy Quay. Together we'll set out to find the through lines woven into Connecticut life to trace how each of us is more alike than our assumptions make us think. When we commit to following every thread to reach a deep understanding, it becomes clear that our differences and disagreements may be the result of the things we left untold. This episode, education. If you had to think about an area of life where the pandemic most obviously exposed the enormous divisions that already existed in the state, education would probably be at the top of the list. We were already the state with the largest achievement gap in the nation, a state where half a million people owe more than a billion dollars in student loans, and then teachers, students, everyone, everyone was sent home. Coming up, Janice Roman has been talking with teachers and families around Connecticut about surviving the pandemic in a K-12 system. There was nothing at all that could have prepared us for March of 2020. And we'll invite Krister Estrada Perez from the Student Loan Fund into the studio. We'll be getting down to the nitty gritty with her about what an education actually costs and who pays. Um, so mine is at $84,485.06. You, do you have yours, John? Oh, yeah, my, mine's zero. <laughs> I, I got it right here. But it's ridiculous. No, absolutely. It's fucking stupid. It, uh, you want to you want to you know how stupid it is? I, oh, yeah. Here, here we go. Here's how stupid it is. Uh, $146,622.42. What? Yeah. You have all these things, and you have the piece of paper. Yeah. yeah right? Which you can only burn once for warmth once your heat gets cut out. <laughs> <laughs> Untold is brought to you in part by Leadership Greater Hartford's webinar series, Bleeding in the New Now. It's designed to support community leaders who are navigating emerging and established trends, and it features some of the best leadership minds locally and nationally. Learn more at leadershipgh.org. Untold is also sponsored by UConn School of Public Policy, a leader in public policy, public management, nonprofit management, and survey research education. To get us started, a lot of kids had big events in their educational lives that came and went while we were in lockdown. Graduations that didn't happen, proms that they couldn't dance at, and move-in days where they got to spend 24-7 in their dorm rooms. There's times throughout the pandemic in high school where it's like, you know what, I'm at home. Why do I, like, only play video games or let me, you know, watch TV? There's always an outside distraction to your education. My name is Justin Lamoureux. I'm from New London, Connecticut, and I'm a freshman at UConn. Especially when we first went back to high school, it was you went for two days in person, then you went for three days total online. A lot of people, when they're online, they don't participate in school. They do not do school. I have a lot of my friends who were like, they were at least decent students, but once the pandemic hit, they were terrible students. People who maybe had like goals 
in school. And then once the pandemic hit, they didn't want to do anything. And it was just kind of like sad to see. A lot of my friends, like Justin mentioned, they were doing decently before the pandemic. And then once the pandemic hit, it's like you're given so much freedom to the point where it's just like, why am I even doing this? Your grades are this low, and now it's the end of the semester, and there's no going back. And I know a lot of people who like begged to walk across the stage my year. My name is Lizbeth Polanco. I went to high school um, in New London, New London High School, and I am currently a freshman at the University of Connecticut. The transition like out of high school into college was really isolated, I'd say. Looking for colleges was hard too because, you know, you want to be able to see the college and see how that experience is really going to like fit you. But some of them didn't even offer tours. You want to do good your first semester. You want to start off strong. I was fully online um, and that really affected my grades. It was, it was really hard to get through it with like a smile. My name is Wilmales Rodriguez, and I am currently a sophomore at the University of Connecticut. Once I came in on campus, honestly, my grades skyrocketed. <laughs> they became so much better. Just going on campus really changed my learning and my comprehension. Even though it was my second year, it does feel like my first year. I do still feel like a freshman. I feel like it's a fresh start. Mercy, we're going to talk about education in a couple different ways here. There's, there's K-12 education, the education that is meant to be provided to every student, not just in Connecticut, but in America. Mm -hmm. And obviously, there are an awful lot of disparities in that type of education, depending on, on who you are and where you live. And then there's higher education. Not everyone wants to go to college. Not everyone is privileged enough to go to college. But for those who go to college, there's an awful lot uh, built in in terms of cost. And, and we've talked about this a lot as we talk about our assumptions around education and how we are recovering from a few things, how we're recovering from COVID and how we're recovering, if we can, from that much student loan debt. What, is, what are the things that you're thinking about? And what are some of the assumptions you have going into a conversation like this? Yeah, I mean, so my assumptions are going to come from a place of, you know, I went to Quinnipiac and I, and I think that the school was phenomenal. I would not change my experience there. Mm. However, Quinnipiac cost about 64K a year. And the first job I was offered out of school as a reporter offered me 28K a year. And there's a very clear, uh, you know, uh, discrepancy in a potential earning there. I will never be able, I would have never been able to fully pay off my student loans at that rate, right? And so some of my assumptions coming into this are, I assume I come with the, to this with the assumption that this is actually an easy issue to fix. I think that whether on a state level or a federal level, money is fake and we should be able to push a button and erase people's debt the way we do for banks. Yeah, remember, banks are too big to fail. Mm -hmm. And so we, we had to bail them out. And what you're saying is if you put in the aggregate that millions of people 
tens of millions of people who have enormous student loan debt. That is also a group of people that's way too big to fail. Just bail them out. Bail you out. Bail us out. I mean, the student loan crisis on a daily basis stands at more than uh, $1.3 trillion. Yeah. And if we are thinking that a conglomerate of, let's call it 20 banks that are running our economy, are far too big to fail, the masses, the millions of people who are crippled by student loan debt, who are unable to purchase homes for the first time, sell their home, get the equity. I can't get equity out of my home right now because my credit score isn't the necessary uh, level that it needs to be. So as a small business owner, my credit score has to be 820 to pull uh, equity out of my home. And my debt to income ratio has to be far lower than it presently is. Specifically, um, what is impacting it are those student loans. So so yeah, so if your student loan debt gets wiped out, your ability to uh, succeed as an entrepreneur to put more money back into the economy as a as a consumer, but also just grow, create jobs, all those things exponentially changed by by wiping that out. And here's the thing: I mean, one of my assumptions about this, looking at this issue for a very long time, is yeah, we can, we absolutely can do it. Look at what happened in Connecticut not that long ago. We used to ask people to pay a relatively modest amount, but still a real amount, to go to community college. Mm-hmm. And we as a state, and other states have done this too, have said, you know, we think that it's so important that people get a a baseline college education that we're going to make community college essentially free. Go get the first couple of years of your education at community college. But we could have done that all along. Mm -hmm. And if we can do that... Why couldn't we make state universities free? What's the what's the magic in saying, well, all community college is free. We can't do this. I'll say, Mercy, in, in Europe, this is just not even a question. It's a non-issue. They, there are several countries, mostly European countries, that provide free education at the at the college level to students in those countries. And these are prosperous nations that have people who are able to then get on and do things after college and not have to worry about the $1,200, $1,300 that they're paying each month for their student loans. And I think what we end up um, seeing here is the way that we have created a society that hoards wealth is, you know, that is also bleeding over to our beliefs on education. You hoard wealth, therefore you should also hoard access to information and the things that can give you access to acquiring and, and maintaining wealth. We shouldn't be thinking about education from a scarcity mindset. You getting an education doesn't impede my getting an education, right? You know, one of the things that I think about a lot when it comes to that actually gets back to to K through 12 education and the way that we somewhat cynically approach the idea that we have to educate all people. I mean, we we say education is important. Higher education is important. K through 12 education is important. It is uh, very, very difficult and impossible in this state uh, to this point to get inequality of public education depending on what town you live in. We have a system that is based on property taxes town to town. The places that can raise more property taxes have really nice schools, some of the best in the world here in our state. Mm -hmm. And the places that can't have some of the worst schools in the nation Mm -hmm. in terms of outcomes for students. I think that the cynicism that starts there is what we see all the way throughout, right? Like we want people to have an education and we can give lip service to that actually being provided. But we don't do any of the things necessary to actually make that reasonable and effective for the largest number of people in the state. 
And as two individuals who care a great deal about, you know, the meaning of words, I think even that line that you just said, we want people to have a great education and that we're doing a great deal of lip service to this. When we say that and when we make that a part of our, you know, daily lexicon, when we're when educators are talking to parents, when, um, you know, a superintendent is talking to teachers, we want students to have a good education. We are rooted in the want and mm-hmm. the desire, and it makes us feel as though we're actually doing, right? Mm-hmm. And so I wonder if we were to switch that language and say we're working to ensure everyone has access to a great education, how would that change our actual behavior. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. But but even just within the last couple of years, we've seen some things that are frankly quite, quite troubling. Mm-hmm. Every day now, there are people who get up in the faces of school administrators, school board members, teachers saying, you're teaching things in schools that are that are bad for my kid. You're, you're revising history. You're teaching critical race theory. Ooh. Is that your sound effect for CRT? Yeah, yeah. But, 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 right, we don't even have an agreement on what that education would look like, let alone for whom. There's a whole bunch of people who actually think, nope, nope, the education system that we have established here, as broken as it is, isn't even the right one. We need to be teaching an entirely different revisionist view of history. I mean, and the who is such a good point. Again, inner locus of control, outer locus of control. If a particular district doesn't have great schools, move out of it. Mm. Right. What's your issue? Just move out of that system. Move to a better school system. And we have um, in our society refused to see this as an issue of broad access and a right to access and instead an issue of earned access, Mm. right? And so I think, you know, and John, one of the things that we'll dive into in this episode is how the pandemic has even um, created shifts in that understanding, cemented some of those pieces of understanding, and really affected the way students and teachers have experienced education in the last two years. Yeah, and I I think one of the, the real stark realities that that came to the front in the last couple of years is you get a chance to see inside how difficult life is for teachers trying to to do their jobs in public schools we have accepted as a nation that teachers have to take out of their own wallets Mm -hmm. to pay for resources in their classrooms and at the same time we look at teacher salaries and say, oh, my goodness, they're making fill-in-the-blank number. Mm-hmm. That's way too much. Way too much to teach your kids? I mean, one of my assumptions about that and the value of teachers and teaching comes from the fact that my wife is a teacher. Right. We don't value it anywhere near enough. How do we know we don't value it? Just look at the numbers. Mm-hmm. Just just look at how we actually compensate people. Look at the fact that there are GoFundMe pages mm-hmm. so that, you know, Mr. Smith can actually get textbooks for his kids and the, the right supplies. That is the type of cynicism that I that creeps into all of this. That maybe my assumptions coming into this is our education system's kind of broken and I'm looking for mm-hmm. any any help here in in you know, it may be being better in the future. Yeah, I mean, I that's an assumption that I have. I think that our um, 
our education system, whether it's funding, whether it's um, through approach and pedagogy, right? I think it is deeply flawed. Um, it works for others. So I won't say it's broken, but I will say it is deeply flawed because it works for some places. You look at Cheshire, you look at Bramford, right? These are districts that are um, well-funded and have great school systems. Madison, right? Um, I'm thinking of Fairfield, folks, uh, districts along the shoreline. But then they're adjacent uh, communities. So thinking of Cheshire, right next to Cheshire is Waterbury, a school system that is really struggling right now and impacted by particular challenges of poverty and, and food inequality. So it's also a conversation on the 12 convoluted uh, funding formulas coming from the state that funds um, local education. And one thing is for sure, it's not working. Now, what's it say about a system that requires so much intensive volunteer time for parents? It means that parents who have time get the better resources and the ones who don't lose out. So l l let's listen to some people in this episode who who actually have been thinking about this a lot, too. And, and hopefully they'll give us, I don't know, a little bit more hope than you and I have about this. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Untold, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. I'm Mercy Quay. And I'm John Dankowski. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Hamilton, executive editor of the Connecticut Mirror. Our impact reporting is made possible because of the financial support of members like you. If you are a Connecticut Mirror member, thank you. You're helping to create and sustain in-depth news coverage here in the state. If you haven't yet supported the Connecticut Mirror, I encourage you to do so. Nonprofit, nonpartisan journalism like this is vital to our democracy. Go to ctmirror.org and click the red donate button. Thank you. Learn more at ctmirror.org slash untold. There you'll find bonus content and a look behind the scenes. And we want to hear from you. You can email us at untold at ctmirror.org or engage with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at ctmirror. Send us your untold stories. Record your voice for our next season. Let us know what's going on in your community. When schools shut down across the state in March of 2020, most kids and teachers thought they might be out for a couple of weeks. That turned into months, and it involved huge mobilization of technology to help kids learn remotely for the first time. It was pretty stressful for everyone, but for some school districts already on the edge, it was a strain that put them even further behind. Here's reporter Janice Roman. For some families, recovery means getting back to normal. How was school today? Good. Yeah. Have too much work. Sabrina and Dan Bowersett live in Ashford with their three children, Ben, June, and Esther. There was a huge learning curve in the beginning that was kind of stressful. Sabrina's an educator herself, and as the COVID shutdowns began, it was tricky to suddenly have all three of her children at home. As a teacher, I really appreciate watching how creative their teachers got. We just were so grateful for what they were able to do and that they were able to keep them engaged. For Dan, lockdown provided a new window into his kids' lives. I worked from home and I could, well, I was downstairs, so I could hear each one of them at different times. It was kind of neat to hear, be more involved in what they were learning and saying every day, you know? June plays the trumpet for her school's band. 
In fact, all three of us play the trumpet. Really? Okay. <laughs> that was interesting in the pandemic. And then I do. <laughs> it's yeah. our future mariachi band. Despite the challenges, Sabrina says the time in lockdown brought her family closer. Her children learned skills like time management, and she encouraged them to find new hobbies. Ben, who is 16, says staying physically active has helped him. I definitely started going on a lot of bike rides and walks to my friends' houses and stuff like that. Just being outside, which I think is always good for your mental health. The family is looking forward to getting back to normal. The day I visited, Esther told me masks had just become optional at school for the first time. And there were a lot of people that I had like never seen before their faces because a bunch of new people have come during COVID. Sabrina recognizes that the past few years in education have been different for her family compared to others. A lot of school districts are talking about how we have to get the kids where they're supposed to be, but I don't think that that line is there anymore. I think we need to kind of meet them where they are right now. From suburban Ashford, we head next to New Haven. For Janelis Marquez, Recovery means catching up. Okay. Come on in. Nelly, do you actually want to sit there and I'll put Alex next to you? Okay. At the Yale Child Study Center, Janelli sits with her 15-year-old son, Alex. Even before he was sent home during the lockdowns, she had been concerned about how he was doing. I started noticing something was not right. Um, the school ensured me that he was fine and there was nothing was wrong with him. But when he started learning online, she could see that wasn't true. He couldn't remember what he just read or his homework. He would get frustrated when I read to him and um, he yelled at me like he didn't understand. When he started hurting himself, I knew I needed to get help. Alex is the oldest of four. Yanelis had given birth to her youngest right at the start of the pandemic and had to navigate the challenges of taking care of a newborn on top of helping her kids with virtual learning. I have to be there with him, sitting down, for him to be able to get his education. With me, I have other kids, so it was kind of hard to, to balance it. And she says the overwhelmed teachers weren't much help. I just felt like they were forgetting about him. And he started noticing, too, like, hey, I can't do this, or I can't. I tried to explain it to teachers, and they were like, he will catch up. We felt like they wasn't hearing us. Alex became depressed, afraid to leave the house, and would have episodes of anxiety. At one point, Janelis even took him to the emergency room to get help. Finally, she managed to get a referral for psychiatric services, and Alex was able to meet in person with specialists to get the help and learning accommodations he needs. Finally, I have some answers, and it was just not me thinking certain things. I'm very happy, at peace, and very, very grateful. <laughs> yeah. The mornings are so cold. Good morning, Julia. Good morning. Now that we've heard from some families, I want to get the perspective from the other side of the classroom. I've been in New Britain um, as a classroom teacher for 29 years. This is my 29th year. Sue Brigandi has seen a lot of things during her teaching career, but 
There was nothing at all that could have prepared us for March of 2020. Her current class of fifth graders were in third grade the last time school was anything like normal. And although they're now back full-time in the classroom, the effects remain. They're still living through the pandemic. Um, and when we think about where we would want our fifth graders to be, for example, we absolutely want to, to close any learning gaps. But I also think, too, that we have to recognize that the last year and a half for these students has been unlike anything anyone prior to them has experienced. The COVID journey, um, I think, was traumatic both for students and teachers alike. It kind of tore apart the foundation of what we as educators have relied on for so long. Sheena Graham is a high school performing arts teacher in Bridgeport. Virtual learning was hard enough for math or English. For a choir, it was next to impossible. To give you one example, there was a student that was so vocally powerful, um, always digging deeper than the lesson went. And I noticed that once we went to online, her interaction was very little. And what I found out was she was actually in New York and she was responsible for seven children that she was taking care of while she was trying to still finish her education. So virtual learning was hard, but the challenges didn't end when they returned to the classroom. I reminded another kid to pull the mask up over their nose. And I had this young man that just jumped up and said, you need to get it straight. Us black and brown people, we're not trying to be wearing anybody's mask. And there is no such thing as COVID. It's nothing more than the flu. So you need to get it straight and you need to get, and I mean, he just went. Now, that student has to be valued in my classroom, along with the kid next to them that has lost eight members of their family, along with the kid that is in school with the mask on, but doesn't want to be there because they're they're scared to death. It's a table of love, a table of hope, a table of joy, a table of sorrow. It's Sheena says teachers are frustrated by the environment the conflicts have created. I think part of it is really that as educators, we work to provide a safe place for our students. We really want every student to feel valued, find their voice, and grow. And all of a sudden, I felt like I could not do that. And I think that's where the stress came from. I couldn't guarantee my students' safety. After almost 40 years in the classroom, Shana Graham retired in January. The music you heard there was performed and produced by Shana Graham students at Harding High School in Bridgeport, and both songs were written by Shana. You're listening to Untold, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. I'm John Dankosky. And I'm Mercy Quay.
actually start from the top and have Chris introduce herself and do that nope. whole nine? Hundred <laughs> percent not. Nope. This is just too good to start to start from the top. Um, but but yeah, that would probably be a good idea. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Why don't you just give us give us your name? To yeah. Tell us your full name. Tell us what you do. Yes, yes. So my name is Krista Estrada Perez. Chris is totally fine. Uh, I am a first-generation college student. I am an ELL learner. I graduated from neighborhood schools in Hartford. I am the executive director of the Student Loan Fund in Connecticut. Uh, and we organize around student debt cancellation, free college for all, and really talking about the inequities in higher ed education. I graduated with $87,000 in student debt from the University of St. Joseph's, a Connecticut-based institution. Uh, And so we, you know, we are advocating on behalf of nearly half a million borrowers in Connecticut, right? That $1.6 billion in student loan debt, right? So we are a relatively small state with half a million borrowers already owing that much money. Hold it. Say it again. Half a million borrowers. 1.6 1.6 billion yeah. in debt. Oh, yeah. 1.6 billion dollars worth of debt. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, and if you if you were to break down those half a million borrowers, I mean, who 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 owes most of that debt? Yeah, I mean, it depends, right? But it's disproportionately people of color because that's sort of the national trend, and that's replicated in Connecticut as well. So we find that working class people, people of color, uh, black folks, uh, women are usually the ones that are the heaviest carriers at the national level, mm-hmm. and that tends to be replicated at the state level, regardless of what state you're looking at, for the most part. Well, um, talk to me. How when we're talking about higher education funding? Yeah, I mean, that seems so distant for what people. Yeah. Um, come to understand about yeah. how individuals fund their own educational experiences. Yeah. But talk to me about the system of higher education funding. You know, higher education used to be free in this country, right? Before you would take out smaller grants here and there so that you can pay for um, books, tuition, sort of like sort of these things that you needed to pay for. But it was relatively free. And it wasn't until folks of color, women, black folks started entering into the higher education system that we started going away from the full funding of education. And so what we end up having is this sort of ad hoc way of paying for higher education that used to be free, but now it isn't anymore. Um, and so there's a lack of commitment then to provide grants. So grants, we see grants have either decreased or stagnated, uh, whether that be Pell, Pell Grants or whatever methods we've had throughout the years to finance higher education. It's stayed either stagnant or it's gone down. Uh, so Connecticut, for example, is a height that state for higher education borrowers simply because Connecticut doesn't give a lot of grants. But, but mm-hmm. if you were going to design a system yourself yeah. that was better than the one that we have, yeah. is is that what you do? Provide more grants? Or would you structure things in an entirely different way? I mean, if we can dream, I would yeah, dream sure. that, you know, higher education should just be a part, you know, it just should be the factor, right? It should be free. Uh, just not just accessible, but free. Especially because we have, you know, places where higher education is needed now for a lot of employment. And if you look at the, the, wage, the wage stagnation versus how much we're paying for college debt, we need the college degree to get into certain jobs to make a little bit more money, but we don't really make that much more money. You're looking at places that need bachelor's degree who are going to pay $35,000 a year. You can't live with that in the state of Connecticut. We've had, you know, I've had friends and borrowers who have to pay $500 of student loans making $35,000 a year and living in Hartford, right? $500 is more than I pay for my card note. That's half of a rent, right, depending on where you live. And so if we can dream, I think a higher education should be like K-12 through education where it should just be free and accessible to all. Um, especially public. You can still have your privates if that what, what is what folks want, but public education, higher ed should be free. 
So, I mean, it, as we're dreaming, as we're designing a, a, a new process, in, yeah. in this room right here, it yeah. launches today. Yes. Right? Um, what would that look like to, in uh, a, a high school senior graduates, go, mm. applies for college, mm. your acceptance is based upon right merit, and then you go there and you have no bill? So if you want to go to college, because the other thing is not everyone wants to go to college. So you want to fund education writ large. What that, what does that look like with technical schools? What does that look like with higher education, liberal colleges, or more specified higher education uh, facilities that specify in certain professions, right? Whatever that looks like, the person has access to be able to do that because it's free. So they get to really make a choice about what is it that they want to do. And they aren't burdened by thinking about, well, how much do I have to make in order to pay this back? But if you want to go to a state school and you want to be a teacher, that should be paid for. That should not be, you shouldn't have to go through hurdles. Well, and, and you want to be a teacher, I mean, you said it right there. Yeah. That's one of the professions, as we talk about the inequities in, in all of this. You know, Connecticut teachers, on an average starting salary, make less than $50,000 a year. Yeah. So if you want to do this very important thing, yeah. you know, maybe go for a master's degree and be able to make more money along the way as a, yeah. as a public school teacher. It's almost impossible to pay off pay mm -hmm. off those bills. Yeah. I mean, but one thing I'd say though is is you said before we should make it like K through twelve and make it free. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that our K through twelve system, while it is free, oh, yeah. it's like hugely inequitable, Absolutely. right? Like mm -hmm. we, we we say we're giving everyone a free education, right. yeah. but it's not. Absolutely. And so so as you design this system, how do we bake that in mm -hmm. more fairness into the higher education system yeah. than we have currently in the K through twelve system? I think it's a whole. I think we have to change our approach and our uh, our sort of like orientation towards education, right? Because education writ large should just it deserves better attention, better funding, and better redistribution distribution of resources to those spaces. So exactly. So those K through 12 education spaces are going to have the inequities and those students are going to carry that inequity into college. For example, I'll take myself as an example. I graduated from Hartford Neighborhood Schools and I love, you know, right, like me having been able to be a part of a neighborhood school. And at the same time, when I ended up in college, I had to take, you know, English 99 to sort of cut up. That is, those are things I have to pay for. Those are remedial courses, remedial, and I'm using, you know, air quotes here. It's, I have to pay for those courses. So those kids are carrying that inequity across into higher education, with, which then is translating into higher debt for those folks, right? So I think for us, it's really important to think about a holistic approach to education. But I, I just want to really like center yeah. in on that. It, so many people talk about the fact that uh, schools, especially in, in urban neighborhoods, aren't giving kids the education they need to succeed in college. That's something that we hear all the time. Yeah. And we say, well, that, that's terrible. Obviously, they need that. Yeah. But you're saying something that not as many people talk about out loud, which is mm -hmm. that, quote unquote, I'll use the air quotes too, remediation that you need mm -hmm. coming out of a neighborhood school system in Hartford, mm -hmm. you actually then have to pay for in college credits. Right. Yeah. That nobody else is paying for that. Correct. The people who are supposed to be paying for your K through 12 school aren't paying for that. Correct. Right, and, and you're taking on the tax of having not received a quality education. That's, Absolutely. That is, you're absorbing that tax. Absolutely, and already students of color have to borrow more. Specifically, black students have to borrow more every turn. And one of the reasons being is because we lack generational wealth because of institutional like choices that were made that create this oppressive economic impact on our communities. There's a through line that we often don't talk about. And so what ends up creating is a, a intergenerational economic gap that already existed. We're just now doubling and making it worse. So tell me about what, what Connecticut can expect uh, in terms of an economic impact. If yeah. uh, half a million 
uh, let's call it millennials, young people, folks yeah. who have been uh, historically for the last you know 10-ish years impacted yeah. by this astronomical debt. What's yeah. the economic impact to our state? Absolutely. So let me rephrase one thing. So it's, we have $1.7 billion. I want to make sure we got that right. And the national, out of the slice of the national debt, which is $1.8 trillion. I can't even fathom what that number looks like in real life, right? Yeah, yeah. I tried to read it out once, and I, I just, I never learned how to count that high. I mean, <laughs> it's just, it just, it seems so, it just doesn't, I can't compute, right? I can't comprehend it. But the impact is severe, right? Because what has ended up happening is people can't invest in their local economies, right? And I think that's the, the pieces that folks don't put together. People are leaving. Connecticut is a really, a really expensive state to live in. Um, and so in Connecticut, what happens is that a lot of folks either leave, right, because they can't afford it, or if they do stay, you end up barely making it. So what ends up happening is you can't invest in your local economy. You can't leave your job if you really wanted to pursue something else and do something differently and start a new business or whatever it is that you wanted to do because you're beholden to your debt. You have five, you know, you might have $500, $300. Some folks have to pay $800 in student debt. I got you beat on that. 16 yeah, exactly. A month. Yeah, 1600 a month. 1600 a month? Yeah. For Absolutely. Your student loans? For my student loans. Do we, do we want to play the how much do you owe game? Sure. <laughs> so you are 87, you said? 87,000, yeah. I'm $127,000 mm-hmm. in student loan debt. I, I, I'll, 35 I'll... of it comes from St. Joe's. Yeah. Um, uh, another 35-ish yeah. comes from Quinnipiac, and then the remainder is from, you know, my graduate program. Yeah. There isn't... There isn't financial aid for a graduate program, depending on what program. But you yeah. know, graduate uh, a, a master's in public relations from Quinnipiac University, shout out Bobcats, still <laughs> is going to be yeah. <laughs> incredibly expensive. And something yeah. that you brought up earlier that I want to touch back on is mm-hmm. folks are graduating with this much in student loan debt. But when you uh, when you do graduate and you enter that the workforce, yeah. you're you're in some cases promised a job that actually is never going to yield the returns to be able to no. pay that off. Absolutely. So some make, some people are making really tough decisions, right? Some people are making decisions of whether do I eat or pay my student loans because they can garnish my wages. Do I afford medication, right, instead of, and that intersects with healthcare, right? Do I afford medication instead of paying my student debt? Can I uh, afford to move, right? There are so many factors that go into folks making decisions because they have these big ticket bills every month that during the pause, fo- some p- folks, because not everyone has been able to benefit from this pause, right, have been able to get a little bit of a breather and pay down their debts or do something in their communities and invest in their communities because they don't have this looming or going to their savings. We know that most Ameri- you know, most people in the United States can't afford an emergency, a $400 emergency. So folks were able to put some on those savings. It also causes a lot of mental health. You know, I have borrowers who can't even talk about this, right? The idea of talking about student debt, they won't look at their uh, their dashboard because they know that it is an insurmountable amount of debt, and they can't even wrap their heads around, how am I ever going to pay that off? Uh, so there's these, these false assumptions that if you get this degree, if you're an attorney, if you're a doctor, if you're a nurse, you will be able to pay these things back. And that is just not true, and especially because student debt doubles. Mm-hmm. Earlier, we were talking about when I graduated, I graduated with 67000 in student debt. I'm at 87000 and I've 30, I'm 31. I've been paying since I graduated, right? So it only, because of the interest, it compounds on the principal. But to talk about when you took out those loans. I mean, yeah. I, you know, a lot, of, a lot of folks say, well, look, no. You didn't have to go to St. Joseph. There's there's cheaper schools that you could have gone to. You didn't need to take out that much debt. And you signed the papers. Mm-hmm. I mean, you knew what the interest rates were. You knew how much it was going to cost you every month. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
you know, yeah, it's too bad, but mm-hmm. like you, you signed up for that. Mm-hmm. Tell me what's wrong about that. There's so many wrong things about that <laughs> statement. And I think the first one is we can't spend the last 10, 15 years telling students that they need to go to college because that is the way out of X, Y, or Z, right? To get more money. It's to the get only a better, option, really, It's the only right? option, it's what right? you got to do. That's what you got to do. You're on the conveyor belt if you ever want to break generational. Absolutely. Right. Generational wealth, being able to provide for yourself some semblance of economic means, right? It's been sort of put into your brain that you needed to go to college. You can't tell people for the last 10 years that they have to go to college as a means to make a living and earn a, a wage, a living wage, and then fault them for doing so, mm-hmm. right? And so the other part of that is um, the financial part of it. Oh, you signed the dotted line. You knew the interest rate. Did you, right? Most students and, you know, there's older students that that might also apply to. Do you understand? You know, there is this sort of like check the box, you read the thing. You go in, they sort of explain it to you in their terms. You say, okay, but you still got to sign. It's not like you can shop around. Right. Right. If you're going to get a college degree, you you got to sign the the box. It doesn't matter what it says. It's the only kind of debt that you can't shop around, right? That's right. You buy a a car, you can shop around. You buy a house, you can shop around. But this is the only kind of debt that you can't compare rates. And even if you were, there aren't a great deal of options. You go private and you forfeit a lot of the governmental Mm -hmm. support that Mm -hmm. you might get. Or you go public, but you're still kind of uh, mm-hmm. SOL in some places. Mm-hmm. And if I could say SOL. If you're it's, it's, a pod, it's a podcast. <laughs> you, you can say right? SOL. Yeah. You're, you're, you're still SOL in some places because income contingency, all right, I've got no income, but you're telling me that if I'm not working, that you are ineligible for an mm-hmm. income contingency payment. So, you know, it is true, right? It's one of those things that, like, you know, people say shop around. But the reality of it is, is that it depends on circumstance, right? The school you choose sometimes depends on your event. Like, what are you close to home? Do you need to be close to home to take care of family, right? You might need to work, right? So you might have to make choices. A perfect example is my mom. My mom graduated from the University of Goodwin College with a nursing degree as an adult learner. She was in her 40s when she finished. Um, My mother had to choose Goodwin, even though it was way more expensive per credit, because it allowed some level of flexibility that a a working person needed to finish a nursing program, whereas a capital community college does have a nursing program, but you can't work. You know, sometimes it's a little simplistic when I hear the argument of they made those decisions. It's simplistic because it ignores all the other factors that go into picking higher education. Yeah. Well, you talk about, you know, Quinnipiac. You and I, Mercy, both know this school very well. They've undergone over the course of the last 15 years or so this this gigantic building boom. Yeah. Uh, Yukon also, and so much of that, so much of that building, we can we can look at private and public institutions yeah. around the state, and and see that people are doing this. They're building student centers. They're yeah. building all these new facilities yeah. that are meant to attract students, and Correct. often that means attracting students from outside the state. Yeah. That means attracting uh, students who are able to pay the full boat themselves. Absolutely. You know, and and, and that's why they're yeah. increasing all of these services. And that's not necessarily anything that comes back to students Correct. like the ones that you're talking about, right? Students that, that need to make these tough choices about how we're going to pay for things, yeah. about what kind of career I'm going to come out with on the other end. Yeah. Sometimes what students need is grants and money and scholarships to be able to finish. You know, there was a moment where we, uh, St. Joseph's went through a whole restructuring and they had new TVs and a new senior hall. And But we were losing freshmen because they weren't, there wasn't enough money for them to stay or they started to realize you know the other thing is that sometimes your financial aid decreases so you may start with a certain number of financial aid your first year but then they have to prioritize the next first year students so your financial aid decreases and you can't afford to stay in that institution so you have to leave 
some students have to leave and that sort of leads into the other student debt crisis which is transcript withholding mm. some of those students end up and they can't leave because they may owe a little bit of institutional debt uh, to their school and they won't release their transcripts so they e they either have to start over adding to the total debt or they have to pay that back and wait and extend the time before they finish or some students give up. And it's also this, Mercy, it's this terrible sunk cost feeling too, right? Yeah. If, yeah. if you've already put X number of thousands of dollars that you didn't have into school, yeah. and then you don't know if those credits are gonna transfer, you don't know where they're gonna go, mm -hmm. what did you get? Yeah, you, you learned some stuff, hopefully. Yeah, well, I mean, my experience, so St. Joe's for a year and it was 35K. When I went to Quinnipiac, four full years that totaled 35k mm -hmm. and i had to do full, four full years because mm -hmm. i couldn't transfer many of those credits mm -hmm. so what it makes me think of is right in some ways the system makes it easier and, and sort of incentivizes right starting over mm -hmm. from the beginning it makes it easier to do that than going back and paying you know perhaps five thousand dollars to pay mm -hmm. off the three credits from your previous school to get mm -hmm. your transcripts yeah. released so mm -hmm. i it is easier for me to get a new loan of 20k than it is to get to pay off this 5k and also by the way it increases the likelihood when we have to start over that people will run out of federal aid and what ends up happening is those students have to then turn to uh, mm -hmm. private lenders who tend to be I mean the whole system is predatory but tend to be a right like overtly predatory to students um, and disproportionately impact low-income students because they may not have access to low interest rate loans. I've thought about the student debt crisis so much as sharecropping Mm -hmm. Right, it's modern day and sharecropping. Here are my tools. I'm going to let you lend my tools. You will have to pay me back for the rest yeah. of your life. Mm -hmm. And it is, I mean, as a granddaughter, right, mm -hmm. like of a sharecropper from the South, there's sort of this perspective of mm -hmm. when does that cycle end, mm -hmm. right? We just had a focus group actually with some borrowers and that actually came up as well. They called it the exact same, they call it sharecropping because they're like, we'll never be able to pay it off. Then you're beholden to the place that you work at. If you can even get a good place to work at and then you can't leave, there's nothing you can do. You never pay it off. You're always gonna have that debt looming over your head. And it isn't a coincidence that we just started, de you know, really defunding higher education when black and brown folks and women of color and women started entering, marginalized folks started entering the, the institution. I'd like to talk about student life for a second, because John, something yeah. you brought up earlier. I don't think I know where you went to college, but I want yeah. to know what yeah. everyone's student life uh, sort of situation was like, because to me, it sort of seems like there's this disconnect mm -hmm. um, in who student life is for. Yeah. I, I, well, let me, let me tell you, you know, you were you asked about the student debt game before and the two of you went and I, I didn't go uh, yet. And I'll, I'll tell you, my my student debt experience and my student life experience was like that of a whole lot of students in Connecticut, mm -hmm. but very different than what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. My parents paid for my college. Mm -hmm. I came out with zero student loan mm -hmm. debt. I went to Duquesne University, a eh, mid-tier Catholic school in Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. Pennsylvania. Lived on campus for a year. Didn't really like it. Mm -hmm. I was able to move back home. But I didn't have any particular need to work for anything. Mm -hmm. I didn't need to support a family. I didn't need to support uh, younger siblings. Mm -hmm. It was pretty easy for me. Mm -hmm. My wife didn't get any of those things. Mm -hmm. And so when we got married, she went back to school as, a, as an older student. 
and we paid all those costs ourselves. She, she went to St. Joseph College, mm-hmm. and uh, she went for education. And she's we'll, per- we'll just see everyone at Friends and Family Day. I know, exactly. Right? <laughs> well, and, and she's a perfect example of someone who has not made the money back mm-hmm. in the career that she's had in education yeah. from the input that she put in. Mm-hmm. But in terms of, of actual student life, I, I, went to, I went to classes, I got my degree, and I was done. There, there wasn't this, there wasn't this uh, sort of need for the school to provide all those other things for me mm-hmm. that a lot of these schools are saying that they need to provide for other students. I mean, I'd, I'd say that you fit into a great bunch of students in Connecticut, myself, and, you know, a great deal of particularly people of color, students of color, who find that actually I don't have any time to do any of this student life uh, uh, experience, right? Uh, The quad seems like fun, but where do I have time between classes and going to work Mm -hmm. to hang out on the quad and, you know, the new state-of-the-art gym with a pool and a 400-meter track? That all sounds really great, but I actually don't have any uh, space or, Mm -hmm. like, mental capacity to work out because I got to go take care of my younger siblings Mm -hmm. or work. And so it seems like all of these amenities Mm -hmm. aren't actually even for Mm -hmm. um, the the people who might be attending university or colleges Mm -hmm. on financial aid. And and who are paying for them. Right, and who who are paying for them. Who are paying fees and paying tuition dollars specifically for these things. And and that's got to be a big problem. I mean, absolutely, because I think so. there's two ends of it. I think there is the necessary need to do programming, particularly for folks marginalized communities. I mean, anyone, I think some programming is important to like readjust, to adjust to, to college life. Mm-hmm. But there needs to be a realization that not everyone can partake in those things, that a lot of students, especially working class students of color, have jobs. Similarly to you, Mercy, I had to work. So I, I literally rushed from school to work at the mall, right, right after. 5.45 was my shift. 5.45 to 9.45, I had to rush out of class to get on the bus to get, to try to get a bus in West Hartford <laughs> to get to the mall, right, to be able to do that. So they really, even the programming that was available, though I think that there's some merit to some of it, it actually doesn't take into account the full experience. If they had to make decisions between the pool and giving scholarships to students, Give the scholarship to students. But, but, but so it's so interesting. <laughs> but I, I'm glad you I'm glad you said that those words, yeah. the full experience, because I think that that's one of the the pieces of this that really shows the divide and the kind of inequity about the way different people are mm-hmm. able to think about college. Yeah. For so many people in Connecticut and mm-hmm. so many Americans, college, as you said before, Chris, is like the pathway to get a job that will pay you something living that will hopefully fulfill you and support mm-hmm. your family. Mm-hmm. That's like why you're going to college. Yeah. But for so many students, right, well, I want the full college experience. I want to be able to have fun on the quad. I want to be able to go to football games. I want to do all of these other things. Mm-hmm. College is really split in a lot of ways between the people who are getting that full college experience, mm-hmm. all those things that we've been talking about, and people who are using it as a vehicle to get to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And those people are paying the same amount of money <laughs> no yeah. matter what. Yeah. Right. And, and and that seems to be a problem. I, I was having I will say I was having more fun in this conversation when we were actually thinking about a better future <laughs> because it seems so bleak right now. Yeah, yeah. So talk to me about talk to me about the student loan fund mm-hmm. and the advocacy you guys are doing, because this sounds like a future facing you know, series of opportunities. Absolutely. So we're engaged in two fronts. And, you know, part of it is national, right? Because we recognize that national debt cancellation will, that, not, that debt cancellation has to happen at the federal national 
level, right? That's just the, the factor. Uh, the big debts are held with the federal government. So we have to focus on national policy. So our national policy and advocacy is free debt, can you know, debt cancellation, all debt cancellation, not 10,000, not 50,000. That's helpful, but not really. All debt cancellation for all students, regardless of what school they went to. Even pub like public loans, private loans. Yeah, I mean there there are ways for the federal there's ways for the federal government to just erase the debt for students that have federal loans, and then there are other means by which they can support students who have private loans, right? We've extended breaks and breaks, right? That's good, but the ultimate solution out of this mess we've created in higher education financing is debt cancellation. There's just too many There's just too many uh, instances in the higher education financing system where students are taken advantage of. Um, and so the only way around this is full debt cancellation uh, and free college for all, right? So that we don't reinvent this in 10 years. Because if we just cancel debt and not do anything about college and university, especially public college and university, we're going to be here again. One of the reasons that I've heard, and, and this doesn't come from politicians because they won't say this, but one of the reasons that, that um, people who support politicians don't want something like this to happen is, it's very simple. I had to pay and now you have to pay. Right. Yeah. I did it, and now you're going to have to do it. And you just said, Chris, something that's, that's so right, like the idea of wanting to break the cycle, yeah. erase all student debt, however we do it, yeah. and then make college free for all. Yeah. The problem is, is that we're kind of a society that wants to perpetuate what we already did in the past. Mm -hmm. We've done that for years on so many fronts. Mm -hmm. It's even thinking about the language that we use to talk about right debt and right. you said free for all, and I, I immediately had a knee-jerk reaction. Mm. The phrase free for all, it's a free for all. There's a <laughs> there there is a negative connotation mm -hmm. uh, 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 to the phrase free yeah. for all, which is wild to me. As mm -hmm. even someone like me who is very committed to these really justice oriented practices mm -hmm. and policies, we can understand that a, a phrase like free for all is built into our society because it might not be right, but it's familiar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you know, and I'll say this: we've already paid, right? And yeah. I think that's the. I think that's the. We already. We've already paid. I think uh, um, the idea of of not having enough is manufactured, right? We have more than enough. It is how are we choosing to allocate our finance, our national budget? You know, budget is a is a is a sign of our values. So we see a chronically underfunding of uh, infrastructures that are needed for our collective survival and our collective well-being, while these other industries that are, uh, like the defense contractor industry, keep getting bigger and bigger budgets than they even ask for. That's why we use the phrase debt cancellation. We have already, as a collective, paid. Mm. One more than a future-facing thing for you. Yeah. Okay, so then what does the future look like? We, we wipe away all that debt, mm -hmm. and now the millions of millennials, maybe people a little younger, maybe people a little older, yeah. they don't have any student debt anymore. Mm -hmm. Where's the opportunity here, the upside? Yeah. I mean, it's a community. It's an effect that will have not just an impact on the individuals impacted, but their families and their extended communities. You know, we know folks with debt have put off, especially younger folks with debt, have been have put off having children. Some folks can't buy homes, right, because of the debt, right? The debt plays a negative ratio into your ability to get a home. So some folks will never be able to afford to buy their own home. Some folks are putting off marriage because they think they can't afford it. They have put it off kids because they think they can't afford it. And now they don't think it's true, right? So if we want to envision what it looks like, it looks like people buying homes. 
starting businesses, starting nonprofits or other uh, or, or doing work for their community that they might have been unable to do until then. Uh, a resoundingly powerful impact in our local economy, our national economy, because we will be able to afford homes. We will be able to have families and to recenter our priorities to be a collective of folks who care about family and taking care of family and taking care of our communities and investing in those communities. That, that's, that does sound like a future that opens up an awful lot of dollars for people to be able to do things. Yeah, often, you know, dollars, time, you know, energy that we can pour back into our communities, into businesses, into local economy, into national economy, that we can actually afford homes where you don't have to have five roommates, <laughs> right, to, <laughs> to live. I know people who are in their, and, and the other thing is like this assumption of like young, young people with debt. I'm 31 years old. I think I've passed, you know, I'm a little past the, the younger stage, right, and I still have a ton of debt. I chuckle a little bit because um, when Chris walked in, we realized we were in the same orientation class at St. Joe's. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I turned to her and I go, do you remember the speech we were given mm-hmm. of like, look to the woman, look at the woman to your left and look at the woman to your right. Mm-hmm. These are going to be your sisters for life. These are going to be the women who are in your uh, uh, weddings, who are going to be the godparents to your children. Right. Really deeply rooted family value statements. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the next part of our conversation was, hey, who graduated from St. Joe's? Right. Thinking about all the folks that we knew. Mm-hmm. Right. Who were mostly people of color yeah. who ended up either transferring out or dropping out because St. Joe's was too high, because college life was unsustainable, because going to school in West Hartford away from everything was not. Mm-hmm. And you and you had to live on campus as a freshman, but you couldn't have a car as a freshman. Mm-hmm. And so there were all of these ways, right, like that you 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 couldn't actually make it. <laughs> you have to live on campus. You can't have a car. So you have to have the meal plan. Yeah which incurs additional cost. Mm-hmm. It sounds, so yeah, so. Our look, freshman 15 was actually the other direction. <laughs> <laughs> look, look to your left, look to your right, look at all these women who are gonna be, you know, incurring all the same debts as you, probably not finishing school. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. you know, however many years later, talking on your podcast about how, <laughs> how stupid the whole thing was. Yeah. Right? That just makes perfect sense. And ultimately, it's all manufactured because we have the abundance to be able to provide these things and to provide relief. Uh, for these folks. Um, again, all the way from the service workers who serve our food, who have debt, to the doctors and, and lawyers who take care of us on the other end who also have debt. Right. So creating that spectrum of recognition that young people have debt, older people have debt, is an intergenerational problem, um, and we have to treat it as such um, instead of relegating it to just young people. Chris, thank you so much for of talking course. to us. This is fantastic. Of course. It was so good. I mean, it was tragic, but it was fantastic. Yeah. You were- yeah. <laughs> it's it's and it's nice to be able to talk about some things that are, are hopeful ideas, but it, do you ever get like super, super depressed doing this? I think sometimes the best part of the job is talking to borrowers, and sometimes the saddest part of the job is talking to borrowers because you get to see how hard things are for individual folks and the way that the system impacts people individually. So it does, so I think, take away from your spirit. And so I find my joy in organizing and making sure that borrowers are organized and are aware of their rights, right? For us to be able to know that individually, Oh, a, we are not alone, right? Something that the Debt Collective and SLF stands by. You are not alone, as in you're not by yourself, but you're also not alone. And at the end of the day, we lean into collective liberation so that our individual stories might feel insurmountable, but our collective struggle um, can create shift uh, and that we all have a role to play in our organizing, uh, in our own little organizing way. Yeah. Thank you for the work you do. Thank, Thank you. you so much. So you are not alone and you are not alone.
That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> This is Untold, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. You can go to ctmirror.org slash untold for bonus content and photos from this episode. Look us up on social and drop us an email. And if you like what you heard today, leave us a review and share this episode with a friend who'd love it too. Our reporter for this episode was Janice Roman. Our music is composed and produced by Mark Lyon. Graphic design for Untold is by Jordana Hertz. Our intern is Grace McFadden. We have digital support from Kyle Constable. Untold is produced and edited by Harriet Jones. And thanks to the Connecticut Mirror's executive editor, Elizabeth Hamilton, and publisher, Bruce Putterman.